As we were worshiping together, uh, this is just one of those days my heart is just welling over with joy just at what God is doing. And I'm just reminded as I look around the room, boy, God is at work and the kingdom continues to march forward. And I just, it, it encourages my heart every time I'm with you, but there are just times to be with you that I look around and, and just see in, in the faces of people around this room, boy, God's at work, you know, victory, provision, and and today is just one of those days. And in every section, every direction to look, I, I look over here at, at Abby and Diana and just say, thank you, Jesus, that Anna is home after 68 days in USA Women and Children's Hospital. So good to have you guys back. We celebrate that. Um, just just such a cool thing. Hey, I know it wasn't the outcome that you guys were looking for, but Sally Beck seated over here facing surgery this week and had stuff Go a little crazy with the heart in the middle of that, and uh, yet here you are on Sunday morning, uh, fit and doing well, and we give praise to God for taking care of you in that. And uh, uh, I usually don't ever single out first-time folks, but Lucinda, just so such a joy to have you here. And you, even though you're a first-timer, you're not because your family here. And th- thank you for being with us today. And we just celebrate how God is providing for you through the most difficult season of life and give give thanks for that hey at at our house we're just celebrating god at work uh just just cool to see in the middle of of all that uh, the devil would love to do and stir up how god is just pouring out good things Uh, jackie had an opportunity uh to to lead a dear friend of our family to christ in our home this week and we give uh, thanks for that. We'll have an opportunity to baptize her next week and share more about that next week. And so just so cool to see God at work. Uh, we are in uh, a series in uh, the book of Romans. If you've got your Bibles, I want to go ahead and ask you to turn there with me to Romans chapter 8. And uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to share something with you that's totally unrelated at no extra charge here. Uh, we all get stuff uh, sent to us by email every week. You know, most of that stuff you wind up just, just clicking to, to delete. Uh, but this was one that I thought, you know, there's some good truth in this passed on by a friend in the church. Uh, this is just uh, something, one of those pass along things, things I've learned in life. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I picked out about 25 that I thought uh, had some pretty good ones in it. 25 little statements about life that when I preach, I try and always give you practical stuff that you can apply immediately. So I'm going to give you some of the easy application or just practical stuff on the front end. Things I've learned in life. Uh, First of all, I've learned that the best classroom in the world is at the feet of an elderly person. I've learned that when you're in love, it shows. Yes and amen. I've learned that just one person saying to me, you've made my day, makes my day. I've learned that having a child fall asleep in your arms is one of the most peaceful feelings in the world. I've learned that I can always pray for someone when I don't have the strength to help him in any other way. I've learned that no matter how serious your life requires you to be, everyone needs a friend to act goofy with. I've learned that sometimes all a person needs is a hand to hold and a heart to understand. I've learned that simple walks with my father around the block on summer nights when I was a child did wonders for me as an adult. I've learned that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. I've learned that we should be glad God doesn't give us everything we ask for. I've learned that money doesn't buy class. Mm-hmm. I've learned that, this, that it's those small daily happenings that make life so spectacular. 
I've learned that under everyone's hard shell is someone who wants to be appreciated and loved. I've learned that to ignore the facts doesn't change the facts. I've learned that when you plan to get even with someone, you're only letting that person continue to hurt you. I've learned that the easiest way for me to grow as a person is to surround myself with people smarter than I am. I've learned that everyone you meet deserves to be greeted with a smile. I've learned that when you harbor bitterness, happiness will dock elsewhere. I've learned that I wish I could have told my mom and dad that I love them one more time before they passed away. I've learned that one should keep his words both soft and tender because tomorrow he may have to eat them. I've learned that a smile is a very inexpensive way to improve your looks. I've learned that everyone wants to live on top of the mountain, but most of the happiness and growth occur while you're climbing it. I've learned that the less time I have to work with, the more things I get done. I've learned that love, not time, heals all wounds. And finally, I've learned that being kind is more important than being right. It's a pretty good truth there, isn't it? Well, today, we're going to talk about fear. And, of course, fear masquerades under some other names, too, that, uh, that sound a little less intimidating. Worry, anxiety, stress, these all are just different masks of the same issue, fear. In the world of psychology, they tell us that there are only a handful of human emotions, really, when you get down to it. Different, different writers will say different things, but essentially there are about six different human emotions. There are two on the positive side and four on the challenging side. The two positive ones everybody knows and, and identifies with readily, love and happiness. We all know what it feels like to be loved and to be in love and to feel warm affection and attraction. And we all know all the different forms that happiness can take. Joy and contentment, just a sense of satisfaction. Those, those are on the good side. It's the four on the other side that are the problem for us, typically. It begins with unhappiness, all the different forms that that takes. Disappointment, rejection, grief. Loss, frustration, all those things under the umbrella of unhappiness. There's the obvious one of anger. We all are challenged by that one. Anger that can, can fester is bitterness and, and resentment. Uh, there's the familiar one of shame and guilt. All of the baggage that goes with that. And then there's the final one that we're going to talk about today. And that is fear. Fear. Worry, anxiety, stress. It has been said, and rightly so, that, that most of life is about learning to deal with those six emotions. All six. In fact, learning to do the Christian life well really hinges a great deal on learning how to manage those six things. Love. What to do with it. Where to direct it. How to appropriately receive it and give it. And where it needs to be harnessed. Happiness, the directions that you go to pursue it, and what you do when you get there, how you live with happiness without it spilling over in unhealthy ways. And then, of course, the challenging ones, you know, learning how to deal with the unhappy seasons. Anybody can live with the joyous times. Learning how to deal with unhappiness, depression, defeat, all of those things. Um, learning how to deal with your anger. 
which is not always a sin. Jesus would get angry. Paul said, in your anger, don't sin. Learning how to manage anger. Guilt and shame. Two weeks ago, we were in the first half of Romans. All about how we can be free from shame and and guilt and all the baggage that goes with that. And today, the word speaking very clearly to how to live free from fear, anxiety, and stress. The, The word speaks to these issues so very clearly. And of those six, I don't know that there's any one that plagues us more than the one that we're going to talk about today. Struggling with fear and stress. Jackie and I had an opportunity to be talking with someone in the cardiac unit of Thomas Hospital this week, one of the nurses in that unit. And he said, you know, people always say heart disease is the biggest killer of Americans today. And he said, it's not heart disease. Plain and simple, it's just stress. Stress kills more people than anything else in America today. It does. And stress is just fear in a very specific form. Well, today, I want to share with you a word from Scripture that is is really all about how to begin to live free from that. And I'm telling you today, what I share with you today is not a theoretical message. It is a message that I'm sharing from very firsthand personal experience because I'll tell you just as a word of testimony I was born a worry wart nobody had to teach me to be stressed out and anxious and afraid I was born that way I don't know why was born to really good godly healthy parents couldn't have come up in a more stable home environment and I was the biggest worry wart you've ever seen and I mean it started early for me I can remember in grade school I'm talking about fourth and fifth grade I was so overcome with worry and anxiety and at that age it would it would manifest primarily and, and worst of all around school and grades which is so retarded for a couple of reasons one my parents never put pressure on me in that regard not that I can recall and I made really good grades I was a straight A student and yet I would stress at ridiculous levels where I would be sick as a result of that I, I would my hands would break out in terrible blisters that would look like I had stuck them in boiling water. I mean, to the point that I couldn't use them for weeks at a time because they'd be so covered in blisters. And every time that would happen, the doctor would say the same thing. There's nothing wrong. It's just severe stress. He, he's just so stressed out that it's manifesting in bizarre ways in his body. I would keep stomach aches, just get so sick that I could hardly function. And that was the grade school version of me. And as I got older and became a teenager, those, those fears and, and stresses and anxieties began to spill over into other areas. And I'll tell you the big one where it manifested itself in my life as a teenager was I just totally freaked out and stressed over faith, heaven and hell, eternity. I was so afraid during my teenage years that I was going to hell because I had questions and doubts and uncertainties. And I thought, you know, because I questioned the Bible and the reality of God, what, what if those things weren't true? And what if I had been misled? Well, then that must mean I'm not a Christian and so I'm going to hell. And that really freaked me out. And it would just be this vicious, terrible cycle. And then that teenager grew into an adult who got married and very quickly had a child. And a few years down the line had another. And you can just easily picture how that then just transitioned over into fear and anxiety about money and providing for the family. And every month about paying the bills and and anxiety about marriage. and, And just, you know, so wouldn't verbalize it but just so stressed out inside about what if this doesn't work and what if this ends in divorce and just 
life dominated by fear. And I'll tell you for me where it came to a climax. When I was finishing my years in seminary and working multiple jobs and had two children and a, and a wife and just, I mean, life itself was, was pressing in. That part of that time having three jobs while being a full-time student and a dad and a husband and in ministry and all, that's enough to, to wear you out. But I, I remember as a 26-year-old winding up in the hospital in the middle of the night, diagnosed with stomach ulcers and feeling like physically my body was just giving out. Just realizing I wasn't going to be able to function and move forward if something didn't change because fear and anxiety had such an overwhelming control on my life at 26 years old. And and the truth of the matter was, beyond the junk I was bringing on myself, I was healthy and at a good place and had a relationship with the Lord and people around me who loved me and yet couldn't be happy and content and at peace because fear and anxiety had such a hold. Well, I can tell you now, 22 years further down the line as a 48-year-old, fear and anxiety and worry do not control my life. In fact, they are far more distant memories in my mind than they are current realities in my life. Jackie will tell you, I've got my faults, but fear and anxiety and stress do not control my life anymore. Jesus has set me free from those strongholds. And today what I'm going to share with you is the truth from God's Word about how every single one of us really can be free from being dominated by fear and anxiety. Do you want to be free? Is there anybody in the room besides me that's ever struggled with any of this stuff? All right, good. I'm not going to waste your time today. As we go to the Word, in Romans chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 26. Now, he's just addressed in the first half of the chapter how you can live free from guilt and shame. And now he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Everybody say weakness. Would you agree that fear, worry, anxiety, and stress are all forms of weakness on our part? He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's good news. And today's message is all good news. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. That's really important. We're going to come back to that. And then we get to... One of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, one of the most popular verses, and I believe it's probably the single most misquoted verse, most frequently misquoted verse in all the Bible, Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works. Everybody say, God works. We'll, We'll revisit that. In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's good news because it means that when God's done with you, you're going to look like Jesus. Some of us have got a ways to go, but God has committed He's going to make that happen. To be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. This is Paul channeling the black preacher in him right here. He is on a roll now. Good stuff. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? That will preach. Let's kind of give that one back and forth. I'll ask the question. You finish it. If God is for us, 
If God is for us, with conviction, if God is for us, come on, that'll preach. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Yes. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. The phrase there is literally super conquerors. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Jesus our Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Good news. We can live free from anxiety, fear, and worry. And there are four good, solid reasons that we can hang our hats on this morning that we can live free from these. And the first one that he spells out is because the Holy Spirit is praying for us when we have no earthly idea what to say or do. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. If you're a believer, the word promises, Paul's already said it earlier in this chapter, he has guaranteed that if you belong to Christ, the Spirit of Jesus now lives inside of you. This is God himself in you, and it's, this, it's, it's kind of an odd and mysterious thing to us that one God is always three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is in us, and He is in our hours of need and difficulty, of stress and worry. He's interceding for us before the Father from the depths of who we are. He is speaking to the Father for us in ways that we can't even figure out to express and what to say. And He is saying it for us. And you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? The reason we're prone to ask that or to say that is probably because we've prayed for plenty of things and didn't see any results, right? Yeah, we know we have. How many times have you prayed for stuff and it's like, well, I said a prayer for nothing happened? Well, can I just tell you the good news? That ain't how it works with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit prays, things happen. He doesn't lob up heartless prayers, faithless prayers. When the Spirit of God prays, things happen in the heavenlies, things happen on earth. And when you're in a moment of need, stress and anxiety, the Spirit of God is praying for you. And prayer unleashes the power of God to change things, including to change us. You know how Paul said in Philippians, that wonderful little letter that from start to finish is about, it's about how to have real joy in life. And he says... In the middle of that, Philippians 4, 6, don't worry, that's what we're talking about today, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, we try to do that, but most everybody I talk to, your story's like my story, it's like, I try to do that, and yet when I'm worried, I don't find myself praying nearly enough. And here's a really comforting thing to realize, when you don't even think to pray, In those really stressful moments, the Spirit of God is praying for you. 
And prayer is the thing that begins to put our hearts in a place that they can be protected and at peace. 1 John 5, 13, 14, 15, that section, if that's not marked in your Bible, it's worth marking out. I mean, like, like you know, mar- underlining, not marking out, but underlining. It, it says, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we've asked of Him, we know that we have what we've asked for Him from Him in prayer, whatever we ask. So, what's the key there? Praying in line with the will of God, we're assured we're going to get what it is that we've prayed for. A lot of times we'll say, well, what's the point of praying? Because God's going to do it anyway. That is not how it works. There are certain situations in life where God's just going to act because it was so critical that that had to happen. But in most circumstances, God has determined that he is sharing the authority and the responsibility of ushering in the kingdom with those of us who are part of the kingdom. And so he is saying, part of your partnership in this is you, you must pray, you must believe, you must participate in this thing. And so even though it's what I want to do, it's not going to happen unless you join with me in praying. And so when we begin to pray in line with what God already wanted to do, bam, powers unleashed, the will of God is going to be accomplished. The problem is, so much of the time we're going, I don't know what the will of God is in this. I know what I want, and I have no earthly idea whether that's what God wants. That is our big dilemma in prayer, isn't it? Are you with me? I mean, that's the struggle, isn't it? If you could just get a memo that says, here today is what God wants to do, man, I'd knock that puppy out. I'd pray in faith. The will of God would be done. I'd never get that memo. The Holy Spirit does. He always knows, Paul says, the Spirit of God knows the mind of Christ. He has the mind of Christ. And so he's always praying in line with the will of God. Whatever the Spirit of God prays for, it's going to happen. The Spirit of God is praying for the very best in your situation. I mean, think about right now what's going on. What are you stressed about? We're going to revisit this in a minute. What is it that's worrying you, that's stressing you? Here's the good thing you can know about the Holy Spirit's prayers. He is praying very specifically about that, and he is praying the very best possible outcome. And it lines up with the will of God the Father. Boy, there's power being unleashed in that. Now, here's a really cool thing to realize that that begins to be able to happen for us is that As we tune in to the Spirit of God and what He's doing, He has the ability to even redirect our not only our thoughts, but our prayers when we're getting off course. And sometimes when the Spirit of God is praying for us, and we just don't even know what to say, we don't even know how to pray, all we can do is just kind of sigh toward God. Do you ever get to that point? You're like, I know I should pray, dear God. And you know, that's about as far as you get. You ever just have those kind of prayers? It's like, that whole mess, I don't know what to say. Just hear, you know. And the Spirit of God is giving words to that. In fact, Paul said, he's saying things that you couldn't even form words for. They're so deep and so right. He just, he calls them groans and utterances. Okay, now what I'm about to share, I'm sharing as a Reformed Baptist. I spent most of my life, or maybe a recovering Baptist is, is, a, better, is a better term. I, I am, if you're Baptist, don't be offended. I, I grew up Baptist, spent most of my life as a Baptist, and I'm so grateful for that. But we didn't have everything figured out in the Baptist church. One of the things we flat out didn't have figured out was the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. The people we were most afraid of 
I mean, one notch behind Satanist was spirit-filled Pentecostals. They freaked us out. Devil worshipers and charismatics, just, you know, one right behind the other as far as who scared us. And the thing that scared us about charismatics was speaking in tongues and praying in tongues. I mean, just totally weirded us out. Growing up, I just need to stay away from those people. You might get the spiritual cooties that they had. And let's be honest, just to be fair and balanced, there were way too many of them that were, that were you know, we were overboard on running from the Holy Spirit, and they were overboard on trying to get, you know, ram something down our throats that wasn't of the Holy Spirit. They wanted us to have to do certain things that the Word really didn't say. And so we, we were far apart. The thing that freaked us out so badly about charismatics was the, the issue of tongues. And one of the fundamental things that I didn't understand about tongues was that there were, there were three different ways that the gift of tongues, as we commonly refer to it, manifests itself. I mean, there, there are the two that are not quite as common, which are spiritual gifts, where somebody in a moment of time is anointed by God to stand up and speak in a heavenly language a prophetic word, and somebody else has to interpret that in order to minister to the body. That's one. There's another one, like what happened on Acts, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where the gift of tongues was given, and they spoke in earthly languages that they didn't know. It would be like me today delivering a word in French. I don't speak French because the Frenchman is here, and the Spirit of God anoints me to do that. That's another manifestation of the gift of tongues. But the third one is the biggie. It's the one that countless people have. And this is the one that, you know, as a younger person, just didn't make any sense. And I've heard a lot of of people who are my peers today still express so much frustration over this one. And it is praying in tongues, using a prayer language. This passage is so tied to the concept of praying in tongues. Now, for those who've never been there, not to in any way belittle your experience... But I want to speak really plainly to you because I know what it's like to have not been there and to feel kind of weird about everybody else who speaks in another prayer language and to be real rational about it and saying, well, why would you do that? Why would you just be blah, 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 and you don't know what you're saying? That doesn't do any good. That serves no purpose. That's this super rational approach to it. And you need to remember that it's a biblical concept and that a big part of what's going on when you're praying is the Spirit of God is praying within you. And many times, when we're praying in English, and we think we know what we're praying, and we're telling God what we need to know, that's when we're really going, because we thought we knew what to say, and we were the idiots going, but we were doing it in English. You know what I'm talking about? We were the ones praying nonsense because we had such a strong opinion about what God needed to do instead of letting the Spirit lead our prayers. There are times we're praying nonsense. And the truth of the matter is, the real powerful prayers are the prayers that the Holy Spirit is offering and that we offer as we are in tune with the Holy Spirit. And the fact of the matter is, there are plenty of times when the Spirit of God is praying for us and our conscious mind doesn't have a handle on what's going on. And yet, deep in our spirit, we know that there is intercession taking place for us and we are to participate in that and we don't know what to say. And in that moment... We're given utterance, and it's not something that we even really comprehend in that moment. Sometimes you'll have a sense of what the general thing is that you're praying about, and other times you have no idea, and it doesn't matter which. 
Because in that moment, your spirit, linked up with the spirit of God, is making intercession. And it doesn't matter that your conscious, rational mind isn't aware of what you're saying. Because something deeper than that is happening. The Spirit of God is connecting with the hearts of Jesus and God the Father and the power of God is being unleashed to you. Now, I'm not trying to turn you into a charismatic. But I am trying to say, for some of us who came from non-charismatic backgrounds, who have been so scared of, of this concept and of the work of the Holy Spirit, we need to get over ourselves. I'm telling you, this is a big key to living in freedom and power. To realize that the Spirit of God is in us. And He is giving the words that we need. And at times those words aren't going to come through our lips. At least not in a way that we understand. And I'll just admit. I mean there have been times in the past. When I would hear people praying in tongues. And I would poke fun at what nonsense it sounded like. And try and imitate that. And my heart has so changed over the years. To me it's one of the most beautiful sounds on earth. Is to hear A person whose heart is so hungry for what God wants to say and do. That even when they can't form words to to connect with that. That they would open their hearts and their mouths and just seek to give expression to what the Spirit of God is saying and doing. I want to tell you something profound happens in those moments. And your heart is ministered to and things are shaken in the heavenlies when that happens. So we shouldn't shrink back from that. This is part of the profound, deep work of the Holy Spirit. He is interceding for us. And there's a cool thought on top of this that I'll just toss in. Where Jesus points out in in Luke 12. that He says, when you're brought to trial in synagogues and before rulers and authorities. And I know we tend to read that, take it really literally and go, well I've never been called to account in front of the church or in front of rulers and authorities on earth. So... I don't know that this applies to me. All he's saying is, in your biggest pressure moments, when you're put on the spot, when you're put in your scariest situations, and we all have those, when that happens, don't worry. Everybody circle that. That's what we're talking about today. Don't worry. Don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Are you seeing that this is a big work of the Holy Spirit? When you don't know what to say to God, guess who jumps in? The Holy Spirit. He gives words when you don't know what to say. When you're in front of people, when you're put on the spot and you don't know what to say, guess who jumps in? The Holy Spirit. And He gives you what to say. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about those moments. You do not have to worry about the biggest pressure moments in your life where you're so afraid when you're going to have to go back and face your family who are not Christians or they profess to be Christians and they don't live like it. And you know there's going to be a clash the next time you're with them when issues of faith come up and you're so stressed about what to say. And Jesus says, don't worry. Because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you just what to say. And when you work in an environment where it's not safe to be a Christian and you're so worried about the next time that issue comes up, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Jesus says, don't worry. Because in that moment, you can be sure the Holy Spirit's going to be giving you the words to say. Isn't that a relief? Isn't it a relief to know that when you go home and this week, when you are at the biggest pressure cooker moment of the week, you can know above every other moment, in this moment, the Holy Spirit's praying for me. He's praying in line with the will of God and the power of God is being unleashed. And right now, I just need to let my heart participate in it. Oh, Holy Spirit, lead me. Pray for me. Teach me how to pray.
You may even need to just open your mouth up and let whatever he's doing come out. That's comfort. That, that's relief. Because that's not on you. That's you taking refuge in what he's doing. The second thing that he brings up is this. That God is committed to always work out things for our good. Now he says in, in verse 28, I said this is the most misquoted verse maybe in all the Bible. We know that in everything God works for the good of those who love him. Now how does that verse get misquoted so frequently? I'll tell you how. People love to turn it around and say, well, that's okay, because everything works for the good. Sounds like a subtle difference, but it's actually a gigantic difference. What is the difference between everything works for the good and in everything God works for the good? What's so different about those two? I'll tell you what the difference is. For the people who run around going, it's okay, it doesn't matter because everything works for the good. What we are saying in that is terrible theology. Because what we are suggesting is that whatever happened was the will of God and it was supposed to happen and it's a good thing. What a foolish position to take. How do you account for evil? How do you account for sinful, wicked human decisions? God doesn't get responsibility for that. How can those all be good? They're not good. Life is still filled with tragedy, with bad choices, with the work of evil in the world. A day is going to come when that will come to an end. Praise God. The kingdom will be fully ushered in. Evil will be crushed. That will be done away with. We live in the in-between time. There still is tragedy. And it's okay to grieve tragedy. It's okay to call things evil. And to acknowledge, I'm so sorry. That never should have happened. What a dreadful thing. It's okay to say that. And in those moments, don't you dare throw a Romans 8.28 misquoted to go, It's okay, because everything works for the good. And in Jesus' name, I'm going to punch your lights out for the good. You know, that's what you want to do. So silly. It is not that everything is from God and for the good. It's in everything. In the midst of tragedy. In the midst of loss. In the midst of bad decisions and the chaos that ensues, in all of that, God steps in. And God works for good despite all of the evil and the bad choices. That is a big God. That is a good God and that is a very different picture. That is very different from suggesting that whatever happened, we'll just give praise to God because it's going to be for good. Don't dare trivialize a person's pain. When they're going through the worst moment of their life, let them hurt and love them through that. And in your heart, give thanks that God will never waste a hurt. And that in the middle of that grief, of that pain and of that chaos, there is a good God who steps into the storm. And says, I'll still bring good in spite of that. I am bigger than that. I am bigger than that decision. I'm bigger than that accident. I'm bigger than that financial loss. I'm bigger than that sickness. I am bigger than death. I am the God of resurrection. I am the God of second chances. I am the God who is bigger than whatever you face. And in all things, God works for your good. I want to tell you. That makes all the difference. And I know what I speak of. That worrywart kid that stressed and broke out in blisters and kept belly aches. 
grew into an adult whose biggest fears revolved around what if what if one day my marriage didn't work out and ended in divorce what if financially things didn't work out what if what if this ministry thing didn't work out what if i lost an opportunity to serve in ministry and lo and behold when life is just rocking along ministries going great in a church that I wanted to be in for the rest of my life and yet behind the scenes just behind the curtain things are just completely unraveling I mean the wheels have come off at home things that are almost always unrecoverable have happened nobody knows nobody but Jesus and I have been praying 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 begging that God would somehow intervene and break things that needed to be broken and bring healing and allow change and instead the very things that I had feared the most my marriage ended in divorce the ministry that I was a part of that I just knew that I would be involved in for decades to come I no longer had the freedom to be there it felt like the worst fears of my life had suddenly just crystallized in a, in a moment of time. It's hard to describe what it's like being there, but some of you have a pretty good idea because you've been through your own similar moments where some of your worst fears were realized. It, it really, when it's happening, it's kind of like watching a, a train wreck in super slow motion. And you feel like no matter how you pray or what you do, you can't stop the train. It's off the tracks. The only question is how much carnage there's going to be when it stops moving. And while that was going on, it, it's really, it, it's this weird combination. Because I'm not different than anybody else in that, you know, there was a season in that where sleep's really hard to come by. You, you know, you lay down at night and you can't sleep. Weight loss isn't an issue. You don't need a diet because you can't eat. And when you finally can sleep, you don't want to get up in the mornings. You just want to pull the covers over your head. You don't want to have to see anybody. You don't want to have to deal with life or people. You just... There's a little window of time in there where you really do wish that lightning would strike and just it would be over. Not that you'd do harm to yourself, but that you would thank God if he would take care of it for you. Ever been there? And somewhere in the middle of that kind of that level of experience, something is happening in my heart and my head that really doesn't make sense because the, the train wreck is actively happening. And yet, in the midst of struggling to sleep and struggling to eat, there is a peace that just sweeps over my life like just a, a weather front coming in. And it doesn't mean that, that suddenly, you know, sleep was sound in eight hours every night. But I'm just telling you, in the deepest part of my being, I began to experience just a sweet settledness and peace of knowing that God was just there. I didn't know how everything was going to turn out. Didn't know what I was going to do for a living. Didn't, didn't know what the future would hold in pretty much any area of my life. But there was just this amazing peace of knowing that God was there. And that he would work for my good. No clue what that would mean. But that that would be okay. 
and that it would be good. Because you see, in that season, I, I had no idea how things would play out. I had not dreamed of a freedom church. Couldn't imagine having the marriage that I have now. Couldn't imagine what would lie in between then and now. Didn't, didn't understand in that moment that God would actually teach me that I could be completely whole and have joy again as a single person. That was really hard to fathom. I wouldn't have ever guessed that. Had to discover that I was complete in Him and that Jesus really was enough. And by the way, you never know Jesus is enough until you're left with nothing but Jesus. You can, you can say that all you want to. You never really know Jesus is enough until Jesus is all that you have. Came to discover that Jesus is enough. And then out of that, discovered that God does give second opportunities and even brings a new love into my life. It's just, it's impossible in the storm to picture what God can rebuild after a storm. God didn't cause my divorce. God didn't cause any of those painful things that happened. But I'll tell you what God did cause. God, God did cause my heart to be revived. God did cause me to find joy again. God did bring Jackie into my life. God did cause Freedom Church to exist. And he gave me greater joy than I had known in so many years. I wouldn't undo this for a million dollars ten times over. In all things... God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes in the middle of worrying and fretting about what might be, we just need to come to a point of acceptance and say, I don't know what's going to be, but I know this. I know the God who is bigger than the worst storm I could dream up. And if the worst should happen, I know a God who can make a better future than my past or my present. Hold on to the promise of Jeremiah 29.11 where God says, I know what I'm planning for you, says the Lord. I have good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. I will give you hope and a good future. Let's say that last part together. I will give you hope and a good future. That's God's word to you today. Whatever pain and stress and worry you've carried, this is what God says to you today. You don't have to hear anything else in the sermon if you'll hear this in your heart. God says, I will give you hope and a good future. Does that seem impossible right now? I mean for you. Does that seem almost impossible? He's planning your future. And it's filled with hope and good for you. That's good news, isn't it? That is a good God. The third thing I'll say quickly is that Jesus' death proves the depth of God's commitment to us. He says, so what should we say about this? If God is for us, who can defeat us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So with Jesus, God will surely give us all things. Here's what he's saying. If you think... That something is going to shortchange the goodness of God, that God wants to pour out on you. And, and we pretty much fear that that will come in one of two forms. Either Satan and the kingdom of darkness will shortchange what God wants to do for us. Or us and our bad choices and all of the consequences that we think should go with that will cut off what God wants to do. And so Paul's going to answer that by going, who could possibly cut this off? 
Who could shortchange what God is wanting to give to you and do for you? Because here's the deal, and he's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. This is Paul's logic. He says, understand what's really happened. When you were at your worst, lost in sin, you were, the scripture says, you were the enemy of God. You were not a part of the family of God. There was nothing good in you. Not from God's perspective. When you were at your worst place, God said, I would do anything to have you in my family. That's amazing. I mean, when I think about my worst moment and God wanted me in that moment, he looked ahead in time. He says, God knew you in advance. He knew you before he made you. He's watching all this play out and he said, I want you so much in my family. I would give anything for that. In fact, here's what I'll do. I will make the one greatest sacrifice that I could make. My one and only begotten son. I will send him to die in your place. To set everything right so that you can belong to me. I want to tell you, that is love beyond what anybody on earth can can give or comprehend. I mean, I love you. I will not give either of my daughters or my wife to die for you. I won't do it. If, If we're put in that kind of situation, I'll see you in heaven. I loved you, but... I'm not going to hand over my wife or my kids for you. I hate it. And I imagine you feel the same way about me. I'd give my life for you, but I won't give my family for you. God said, I would give my own son for you in your worst moment. Paul said, okay, he's already done that. That's settled. Now, you belong to God. You are a son or daughter of God. His spirit lives in you. He's changing you. You fully belong. You're as much a son or a daughter of God as Jesus is a son of God. And he says, now that you're in that position, what would God withhold? I mean, he's already dealt with your biggest issue. So now when you're facing like, oh, financial crisis, sickness, relational problems. You think God would want to come through? Paul's going, are you kidding me? He would give his son for you when you were a dirty, filthy sinner cut off from him. He'd give the very best for you then. Now that you belong to him, now that you're in a much greater position, what would he possibly withhold that you would need? There's nothing he would hold back that you need. So he's saying take comfort in that. The love of God expressed in Jesus is a reminder. God's going to give you what you need. And he throws in at the tail end of that. Christ Jesus died, but he was also raised from the dead. And now he's on God's right right side, appealing to God for us. How crazy is this? In your moment of need, the Spirit of God living in you is praying for you. And God the Son, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for you. Paul's clearing up this confusion in our minds. For those of us who picture holy, righteous Jesus going to be the district attorney who's going to bring a case against those sinful people who should have been better. That John Beck, that dirty John Beck. Father, let me tell you how bad John Beck has been. You need to deal out some punishment on John Beck. He's got it coming. Paul's going, no. Jesus is never the district attorney. Jesus is John Beck's personal defense attorney. Jesus is the one who stands in for John Beck and says, Father, give him. Give him what he needs today. Remember how much we love him. Here's what John's facing today. Oh, Father, pour out on John Beck what he needs right now. Wow. The Spirit of God interceding. Jesus intervening on our behalf. There's comfort found in that. And then the fourth and final piece is this. That Jesus is turning us into super conquerors who can overcome anything that life has to throw our way. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of superhero movies. I like the Superman movies and the Batman movies, but I'm not just like totally into those. But I, I find it kind of humorous that in 2016, we've gotten to the point that we have run out of villains that are worth fighting. And so we've had to turn superheroes against each other, right? 
I mean, Batman and, and, and Superman are now fighting. And uh, Captain America and Iron Man are having to go head to head. Because the truth of the matter is, we've kind of run out of, of worthy villains. It's like, after everybody else that these superheroes have conquered, what's left for them to fight against other than one another? So in 2016, it's just civil war in the, among the superheroes. It really is a reflection of kind of what Paul is getting at in this passage. That Jesus is making you more than conquerors. He's making you super conquerors. He's making superheroes out of you in the sense that there is nothing that the kingdom of darkness could raise up against you that can overcome you. Because, I mean, think about what it is that defines a superhero. He's got superhuman powers, right? Beyond earthly powers. And he can't be defeated by powers that would defeat a normal human being, right? This makes a superhero. This is how we truly are super conquerors. How is that? Because the very power of God, way beyond human power, the power of God rests in us. And stuff that the kingdom of darkness with all of its power can unleash on us that would should be able to crush any normal human being. It can't crush us. I mean, Paul said we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. You can't do it because the Spirit of God lives in us. Resurrection power of Jesus is all over us. You cannot whip us. Now, in every good superhero movie, there's that moment where it looks like evil's going to win. Just, you know, everything rain down on them. And you think, there's just no way. And then you're reminded, oh, he's a bigger superhero than I thought. Because he overcomes even that. This is a picture of life. That's why we love movies and stories. They reflect reality and life. Jesus has made you. He is making of you a super conqueror. The kingdom of darkness is wanting to unleash everything it has on you. And Jesus is doing something in you where you cannot be defeated. You can't be overcome. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? No. Persecution or famine? No. Or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he gives us this list of things that might frighten us or cause us stress. Let's take a moment and unpack those for just a minute. I'm convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. That's a good reminder. I mean, when we think about, oh, in all of my life, all the difficulties that could come my way, Paul said, you dream up the worst. He can't separate you from the love of God. Nothing in this life could. Yeah, but what if I die? I mean, that's the worst fate of all. What if it gets so bad? What if I get a disease that kills me? What if I'm in a terrible accident, in the words of the Grinch, and I'm horribly mangled? You know, what if that happens to me? Listen, nothing in life or death can separate me from the love of God. He goes on a step beyond that. Neither angels nor demons. In that day, boy, they were really obsessed with angels. And we repeated that cycle in our generation. We've gotten really, really caught up with it. You know, angels. We decorate with angels and everything's about angels. We ought to be reminded, angels are just another created order. They're not divine. We are grateful for their ministry. They are designed to minister to the saints. But we're actually going to judge the angels, the scripture says. So we shouldn't be obsessed with angels or with demons. We need to be aware of their ministry and of their demonic work against us but to realize nothing the angels or the demons could do is going to separate me from the love of god they understand that they can't do that there's all kinds of hellish stuff that they want to unleash on your life and some of it they get to a lot of it they can't because they're on a short leash they can't go beyond what god allows them to do so we don't live in fear of that one thing that they absolutely do not have the power to do and that is to snatch you out of god's hand to remove you from the family of god 
You can't, they can't separate us from the love of God. He goes on to say, uh, neither the present nor the future. Some of us get caught up about guilt from the past. Some of us, the pressures of the present. And some of us just dreaming up. I mean, here's where some people in the room need to nudge your neighbors. He's talking about you. Some of us don't have enough stress in the present, so we have to borrow some from the future. Yeah, it may be going pretty well today, but hell may be unleashed tomorrow. I mean, I'm feeling pretty good today, but I could be sick by tonight. You know what I'm talking about. That mindset where we're borrowing worry. We don't have enough for today. Jesus said, don't do that. Today has enough worry to take care of itself. He said, there's nothing in the present or the future that could ever separate you from the love of God. That means you're going to be cared for. Nor any powers, nothing in the heavenlies can do that. And then he says the most peculiar thing. I, I used to could never make sense out of this. Neither height nor depth. Okay, of all the things that ever scared you, I get that some people are afraid of heights. That's not what he's talking about. I was always like, height nor depth separates you from the love of God. There is no English translation that in three words makes sense for what he's talking about here. Let me give a quick word of explanation. When he says neither height nor depth can separate you from the love of God, he's talking about astrological terms. Zenith, the high point of a star, and and depth, the low point of a star. He's writing in a day when people believed so fully in the idea that you were born under a particular star. You were either born in the season of a of a star that would bring good luck, or born in the season of a star that would bring bad luck. The the whole zodiac thing today is a reflection of that. But they so fully believed in that. You know, I was born under an unlucky star, so I'm marked for life. That you know, I've got bad stuff coming my way. And when when my star is at its zenith, at its height, it's when I'm like, oh, it's like the ancient equivalent of, of today's, you know, Friday the 13th, if you're superstitious. It's like every day's Friday the 13th if you were born under an unlucky star. The, the depth word was for when that star is at its low point. And what he's saying is, if, if you're somebody who believes in superstitious stuff, whether your superstitious ideas are at their low point of power or their greatest point of power. Understand this. None of that gobbledygook has any power over you to separate you from the love of God. Let me give you a 21st century expression of that. I hope there aren't many of us foolish enough to buy into the idea of what star you were born under or what your sign is. Because whether you're born under the sign of the monkey and believe in that, that makes you a monkey. That, you know, I mean, that's just such foolishness. But I'll tell you what we do believe in that's just as pagan and just as foolish. Karma. I cannot believe the number of Christians that believe in karma. Christianity has nothing to do with karma. That is Buddhist and it is Hindu. It is absolutely not Christian. The idea of karma means, you know, you do good, you're always going to get good. You do bad, you're always going to get bad. So half the Christians on the planet are like, I know bad's coming my way because I have screwed up so many times. I've done bad, so I know I'm going to get bad. You may not call it karma, but you listen to how people talk. They believe bad stuff is coming because they screwed up and made bad decisions in the past. Jesus died to ensure karma has no power over you. There is no such thing as karma in the Christian life. There is grace. There is justification. There is forgiveness. There is hope. That's why we can have peace. And Paul is saying, whether you think karma is at its peak or at its low point, whether you get good karma or bad karma, karma has no power over you because the grace of Jesus has covered you. And nothing, nothing present, nothing in the future can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ.
You know, I started today by reading 25 different things that another writer said I've learned. I want to close by sharing three things that this isn't from another writer. This is from your preacher's heart. Here's three things that I've learned about what we're talking about today. When you boil it all down, just three simple truths. First of all, I've learned that much of what I feared in life doesn't ever happen. Just doesn't ever happen. There's a little comfort in knowing that. I've dreamed up a lot of bad stuff that ain't ever going to happen. Much of what we worry about isn't going to happen. Secondly, I've learned that some of what I fear needs to happen if I'm ever going to get past fear. The person who gets free from fear, anxiety, and stress has to experience some of the things that they had feared. Otherwise, you never get past it. It's like wanting to be a, a bodybuilder without ever having to work out. You, you never become the person who's free from fear until you've had to face some frightening circumstances and come to the realization, you know what? God is bigger than that. And peace and joy in life isn't avoiding all the frightening stuff ever happening. It rains on the godly and the ungodly. I can remember when Whitney, our oldest, when she was in grade school and middle school, and she was me made over in female form. She was a straight-A student, but she would stress and worry. and Just, what if I don't make the grade? What if I fail the test? And it's like, if you fail the test, the whole class is going to fail the test. You always make good grades. Why are you so stressed? And yet in my heart, I'm like, rats, you're me. You're just little me. And I can remember thinking and saying, I wish so badly she'd make a bad grade. I wish she'd just bring home a stinker of a test grade. Bring home a bad Letter grade on a report card one time just to see that the sun comes up the next day and Jesus still loves her and her family still loves her and life goes on because you can't learn to totally be free from fear and anxiety over this thing that would be so terrible until you faced a few of those things that seemed so terrible and realized life still goes on and God's still good and there's still joy and peace. Some of those things need to happen. And the final thing I'll say is this. I've learned... That my love for God and my trust in God are inversely proportional to my fear and stress levels. You know what I mean when I say that? It means when one is up, the other is down. When I am at a place that my love for God and my trust in God is growing, my fear and stress levels are just down, down, down. And when my fear and stress levels are up, 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 my trust in God and my abiding in the love of God are just down, down, down. Because you can't do both at the same time. I either focus on what's got me stressed or I focus on the love of God that nothing can separate me from. And the fact that he is a good God who's planning a future for me that's full of hope and good. Now as we close, I want to ask you, not just those in the room, those of you watching and listening online right now. What is it that's eating your lunch? What is it that's wearing you out with worry? What makes you anxious? What's stressing you? There's no shame in, in putting a finger on it and identifying it. Now I want to ask you a simple question about that. That particular issue that just that worries you so much, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your finances, health, relationship, whatever it is. What is the Holy Spirit praying for concerning that? And if you don't have any idea what the answer to that is, 
it's worth asking him right now. So would you join me as we bow together in prayer? Lord, we're so grateful that, Father, through what you've done through Christ, you are setting us free from fear, stress, and worry. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in that. Thank you that even now, you're working to free hearts that are listening to my voice, that you're speaking to hearts. I pray that you would call very clearly to our minds the things that are holding us so deeply in bondage. We realize part of this equation for some of us is that demonic spirits of fear and anxiety have come in to piggyback on our worst fears and to to really make a stronghold out of those. We pray in Jesus' name that those be bound today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would even now speak into our hearts and help us to recognize how it is you're praying for us in those areas and to find real comfort and peace in agreeing with you over that. I'm just going to give you a quiet moment. Would you just invite the Spirit of God to help you see with the eyes of your heart what the Holy Spirit sees as he prays for you in that area? now with just a simple attitude of faith would you just say God I give that whole situation to you I release my fears to you I release that whole situation to you and I choose to trust your word that you will work for good in this and as you surrender that to God I'm going to ask every person across the board to just assume that that's been an area that the enemy's been using. And would you right now, and I'm just going to invite you at this point to at least whisper a prayer for the enemy to hear. Would you just address the enemy and say, in Jesus' name, I bind any spirit of fear and command you to leave. Just across the room. If you want the enemy gone, just declare in Jesus' name, any spirit of fear, stress, and anxiety, I bind you, command you to be silent. Get out right now. I speak in the name of the Lord Jesus with the authority that God gives me as a priest over this flock. And I declare in Jesus' name, spirits of fear, your work is broken, your hold is broken. We command your silence and we order you, leave these people and go where Jesus tells you to go. But do not return to these dear people in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your provision and we pray and and just speak the blessing of the peace of Christ over every heart. Every life and family represented today in Jesus' name. Amen.